Amen. All right, you guys open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Not the epistle, the Gospel of John, please. And we'll be in John chapter 8, just 11 verses. That is after the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Amen. So really quick, the Gospels. The Gospels are about the life and earthly ministry of Jesus. I think Luke said and Acts said uh, all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. And so I love the Gospels. I love looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. He is our perfect example to follow. And so we have the Synoptic Gospels, which are very, very similar. They record a lot of the same things. And then you have the Gospel of John, which takes kind of a different approach. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have specific purposes as well. And Matthew typically was written primarily to the Jewish audience to show that Jesus Christ was the promised Messiah, the King of the Jews. And we look at Mark's gospel, primarily written to the Romans, and was to show that Jesus was a suffering servant, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, ser- but to uh, serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And then we look at Luke's gospel, and primarily written to Gentiles, but it was to show that, that Jesus was the perfect Son of Man, is that if you want to look for someone to follow, you want to look for someone to be like, you want to look for someone to set a pattern after your life for, Jesus is that person, the perfect son of man. And then we get to the gospel of John. And John's gospel is vastly different. And John wrote in his gospel in the later chapters, I believe chapter 20, he says, these things I have written to you that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. And so primarily written to the world is evangelistic in nature, to show that Jesus Christ is God, that he is the perfect God, the only begotten God, the Jehovah God of the Old Testament. And John shows that by showing the I am statements. If you guys remember, I am the bread of life, the Old Testament. I am the living water. Uh, They drank from the rock in the Old Testament, the living water. That was Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jacob's ladder. No man gets to the Father but through me. I am the door. No one can come to the Father but through the door, the only door that we can go through. And these I am statements are very emblematic of in the Exodus, the God of the Old Testament, where Moses says, Lord, who do I say sent me? They're not going to believe that you sent me. And God just simply says, tell them I am that I am sent you. In the Greek, ego, I mean, I've always existed. And so Jesus takes on these sentiments of saying, I am, to point to his identity of who he is. And so that's where we are here in the Gospel of John, and that's the purpose. And so a quick review before we actually get to John chapter 8. So a lot of things have already transpired. John chapter 1 makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is from the beginning and that he is God. And it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And later it goes on and says, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John the Baptist came to bear witness of that. And in John chapter 2, we see that uh, the, the Jesus saves the wedding. Is that he turns the water to wine and saves them from eternal embarrassment and gives them joy. And then John chapter 3, we see the, the famous Nick at Night episode where one of the most religious leaders of the day came to Jesus at night. And Jesus just tells them, you need to be born again. And that's the same thing for all of us. If we're going to ever enter into the kingdom of heaven, we must be born again. And then John 4, we see the woman at the well. Is that Jesus went out of his way for an individual soul because he cares about each and every one of us. And he says that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. If you keep drinking from this well of water, you will thirst again. And Jesus is the only way to quench our thirst. Amen. And then John chapter five, I believe we see Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the, the lame man healed by the pool beside, I believe, and showing again, all these things that are happening that point to the identity of who Jesus is. And you can imagine as the religious leaders are seeing this, Jesus is doing all the things that they were not able to do. Jesus is teaching a way that they've never taught before, a way that they're not able to teach. And so animosity starts to raise up in Jerusalem 
because of what Jesus is doing and how people are responding to him. So there's a lot of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And then we get to John chapter 7. There's a great debate between who Jesus is. Some believe he, he may be from God. Some believe, well, no, he's deceiving the people. He's healing on the Sabbath day. We don't know who he is. And there's a great division. And then at the end of the chapter, they depart. And that's how we transition into John chapter 8. And so uh, if you guys have your outline, well, you don't have an outline. So, but we have an outline, and I think they have it up there. So some way, somehow, an outline will make it to you. Amen? So in John chapter, I title the message, Neither Do I Condemn You. And this one speaks a lot to me because for a long time, uh, when I first became born again, I lived in condemnation. Um, I, I, was, I was in condemnation of my past, of, of the things that I've done in the past. And as I began to read through Scripture, particularly John, I found out that that's not right. Jesus came. And I find a lot of times, a lot of us, we want to... We're quick to condemn people. Well, I saw you do that. Oh, oh, you know, and that's not the way that we should approach one another. And that's not why Jesus came. And so we come into this uh, passage that's very familiar, the woman caught in adultery. And we're going to look at it. We're going to dive into it. And so the first point that we're going to point at is that following Jesus, following Jesus comes with a price. You see, um, many people believe this, this new age gospel that if I follow Jesus, everything's going to get better. If I follow Jesus, then all my problems are going to go away. If I follow Jesus, I don't have to give up anything, but I gain everything. And partly that's true in eternal perspective. But when it comes to following Jesus, there, there is a price you have to pay. And Jesus says that if any man come and follow me, let him pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow after me, and he will receive eternal life. And so it does come with the price. Um, point number two, may we seek Jesus early in the morning. See, the first thing when you get up in the, in the morning is, is, is a big indicator of where your passion and your priorities are, okay? So when we get up in the morning, what's the first thing that's on your mind? What's the first thing that you're seeking to do? A lot of us is, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten all night, so I'm hungry. I want to eat, right? I get that to an extent, but at the same time, uh, is Jesus the first thing, the person that we think about when we wake up? Are we thinking about pleasing him and living a life that will bring his name glory? Are we thinking about how we can become more like him every day. You see, the, what we do in the morning dictates how the rest of our day goes, and how our day goes will dictate typically how the rest of our week goes. How our week goes typically will pour into how our month goes, and then you get the point and so on. It all started with what? What we do in the morning, amen? So may we seek Jesus early in the morning. Point number three, we all know this, sin brings shame. We look at the woman at the well whose her sin is exposed upon everybody, and everybody sees her sin, and it is exposed. And sin does bring shame. And, and the physical picture is she's naked before everybody. And that's what sin does. It exposes you and what you've done. It strips you naked like Adam and Eve when they're walking with God in the cool of the day. And then sin came. And next thing you know, they were hiding themselves with fig leaves. Why? Because sin brings shame and it breaks fellowship. Point number four, before helping our brothers and sisters in sin, we need to examine our motives. And I know the Pharisees could care less about uh, true righteousness, of course, or about people. But their motives for bringing this woman before Jesus wasn't because of righteousness or holiness. It was to try to prove Jesus wrong and to prove them right. And so before we come and help any of our brothers and sisters, we need to examine our motives. And Galatians 6 says we need to be walking in the spirit before we can help one of our brothers and our sisters. So we need to examine our motives. And then lastly, uh, point five, Jesus came to save, not destroy. So the Son of Man did not come to just destroy our lives, but to save our lives. Amen. John 3.16, one of the most famous Bible verses, I believe. It says that God so loved the world that he, that he uh, sent his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But few of us know the, the very next verse, which is John 3.17. It says, for the son of man did not come to condemn the world, but that through him the world may be saved. So Jesus did not come to condemn us. And Romans 8.1 says that there therefore now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And thank you, Lord, for that, because I stand in condemnation without the Lord. How about you? Amen. If you didn't know that, you do, and you need him today. Amen. Praise the Lord. All right, let's get into the text. So first, what I want to do, and you guys don't have to, but just something I think is good, is for us to stand for the reading of God's word. We'll pray over God's word, and then we'll get into God's word. So I'm going to read it, pray over it, and then we'll get into it. Uh, John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees 
brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who was without sin cast, he who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning from the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you so much for the word, the living, breathing word that's sharper than a two-edged sword, breaking bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Lord, we want to be pure before you, Lord. And I pray that today's text, Lord, would add to our faith, virtue and knowledge and self-control, perseverance, brotherly kindness, godliness, and of course, love, which is the summation of all things, Lord. And I pray that it would go to the depths of our heart and that we would hide it there so we may not sin against you, Lord. So have your way, Lord. Speak to me. May I step aside. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. 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 All right. So this is kind of a continuation of John chapter 7 when they had a a great debate of who Jesus was uh, because of all the conflict that was arising because of Jesus. So I'm just going to read verse 53 because it kind of ties into um, the first point. So after they debated and and, uh, they were going back and forth, it ended in verse 53 and it said, and everyone, Pharisees, those who were watching, everyone went to his own house. And then John 8, 1 says this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives was a two and a half mile long ridge that towers over eastern side of Jerusalem, and it means full of olives. And it was a place where you can see the entire city, but was also a garden, a garden where Gethsemane was. So you know, I'm kind of from, I'm from Ventura County, so when you're coming down uh, the grade, so most of you guys know where the grade is, you can see all of like the city of Camarillo and Oxnard, so Mount of um, Mount of Olives was kind of like that. You could see the whole city from where you were. And Jesus often resorted there for prayer, but it was, oft, it was often a place that many events happened in Jesus' life. If you guys are familiar with the Olivet Discourse, uh, when, Matt, when Jesus discusses the end times in Matthew 24 and 25, he was on the Mount of Olives. Uh, this is also a place where he was on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane when he was going to be taken captive, when he was singing psalms on his way to be crucified. This is also where Jesus sent two of his disciples from to go and get the colt for him to ride on to Jerusalem. It's also where Jesus went to pray before going to the cross. And it was a place where he and his disciples often went. This is why Judas knew where he was when they went to take him, take him captive when he betrayed him, the Mount of Olives. And so while everyone else was going to their homes, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, which I believe, my personal opinion, that he went there to pray because that was a place where he can get away. It was a place where no one else would be. It was a place out in nature where you can look at the creation of God and the testament of what God has done and be alone with God. But see, Jesus didn't have his own home. In Matthew 8, 19 through 20, it says, one of the scribes came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Right? It's a lot of us. I'll follow Jesus wherever you go. And everything's good. And then, oh, I got to deny myself? Uh... Oh, I got to go, I, I gotta go uh, build, my, build my backyard. I still got to work on that project, right? A lot of us throw the same thing out there. I'll follow you wherever you go. And he continues and said, Jesus replied and said, foxes have dens. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And I love this example that Jesus sets for us. The greatest teacher we ever knew. Yet he didn't even own his own home, a horse, a cell phone. He didn't have all these social media accounts. He didn't have all these devices that made him popular, but yet he was the greatest man that ever lived. So what's most important to us? 
And what I mean is it doesn't mean that if you have these things that it's wrong. It doesn't mean anything. That's fine. God has given us these things for us to enjoy, right? It doesn't mean that if you have a home, if you have a good job, or if you have a lot of money, it doesn't mean those things are wrong. But what happens is it's what goes on in the heart. It's so if to keep those things, if it comes a point in time where you're going to have to defend your faith and you may lose a job for standing up for your faith, are you willing to give those things up? Or are those things going to bound you and you're going to compromise the faith? See, the Bible says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I tell people a little bit, little bit of compromise. It's like leaven, right? A little bit of compromise breeds chaos. And so what are we willing to give up for the Lord in our heart? In our heart. A lot of us have prized possessions. A lot of us have things. We have our family. We have a lot of things that mean a lot to us. But are we willing to count the cost to follow Christ? When we commit our lives to Jesus, on your outline, when we commit our lives to Jesus, we must consider what we may have to give up to be faithful. You look at disciples. You know, to them, their, their life of fishing was wonderful. But when Jesus came and said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, you look at the text, a lot, none of them question it. Sure, Lord, we'll go. Boom, they left right then and there. Now, surely they didn't probably comprehend the life that they were going to give up and what they would gain and all that they went through. You see, it's been said that no one bears a crown in heaven unless they bear a cross on earth. Amen? And so we must be willing to look at the sacrifices that comes with following Jesus. The bottom line is the world doesn't, doesn't like Christians. The world hated Christ. That's why he was crucified. In John 7, 7, it said, Jesus tells his disciples, the world cannot hate you, but it hated me first because I testify of their works that their works are evil. People don't like hearing they're wrong. I know I don't like hearing it, but I need to hear it. Amen? But people don't like hearing that. Are we willing to hear when we're in the wrong? Are we willing to give up the things that we hold so dear to us? Are we willing to do that? And many, many other things we will give up, but we lose nothing in respect to what we gain. Amen? Verse number two, point two. May we seek Jesus early in the morning. It says, now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So now, early history, back then, the rabbis, they would stand to preach, and then they would sit down to teach. So notice that Jesus, the first thing he did when he got up early, which I believe he prayed first, we can see that through the history of his life, but where did he go first? To the temple. To the temple. Directly to church. Well, temple back then, but church for us. We should seek the Lord early and often. As I said earlier, what we do first when we get up is typically where our heart is. Now, I know when we get up, it's hard. Things, if you don't get up on time, if you don't get up early enough, the world beats you up, and then now everything else just kind of gets past. And so a lot of times we get up and we're like, oh, I need to eat, I got to eat breakfast, I got to do this, I got to... And the thing is, we just need to slow down. We need to put Jesus back where he belongs. And when we get up, we need to pray and seek his face. In Psalm 63 and 1, I have that on the outline. 63 and 1, it says, early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And that's really what it's like when you don't, I know for me, my wife knows right away if I haven't prayed, if I haven't been in my word, right away. Baby, okay? Well, what's going on? What's wrong? Oh, you know what? I look back. I didn't pray. I didn't seek his face early. I'm a different person. You guys, hey, you guys don't want to be around me when I haven't prayed. You don't want to be around me if I haven't read the word. I am a different person. I am like a, you know, that, that Snickers commercial. I'm hangry, okay? I'm hangry. I'm a different person. And just like it is, when we don't eat, we're vulnerable. We're anxious. When we don't spend time with the Lord and we don't seek his face early in the morning before I encounter the people and what, what's set out for me, I'm a different. We're not able to really do what God has called us to do if we haven't spent time in his presence. And so may we seek him early and often in the morning. See, what we seek in the morning is what we long for most. Your body usually seeks physical food, uh, typically the restroom. It's what you missed while you were sleeping is typically what you long for. And so while you're sleeping, you're not reading the Bible. While you're sleeping, you're also not physically eating, and you're also not in the presence of the Lord. So when we wake up, what should be on our mind and our hearts is what we missed while we were sleeping, whatever your passion may be. Amen? And so some of us, 
It's our phones, right, to the social media. What did I miss? How many likes did I get? How many comments did I get on that comment I left, right? Some of us are like that, really, but it shouldn't be. Some of us are like, you know, what, what did I miss on, on the news? What did I miss on, you know, COVID-19 going on? People, some people have been uh, completely consumed about all these COVID-19 updates. And, I, and again, we want to be wise. You don't want to be ignorant about what's going on. But at the same time, our God is in control. You can take a look at that and then get on with your day. But we need to seek the Lord first and ask him for wisdom. Amen? Some of us, it's our children. We think about our children. And, and, and that's, I get that. I understand. I'm a father. I get it. Some of us, it's money. I lost my job. How am I going to get money? How am I, what am I going to do? Some of us, it's drugs, unfortunately. Some of us, when's my next alcohol drink? When's my next drug? When am I, when am I going to get my next high? You know? And, and if that's you, I want to encourage you. That's not the way the Lord, the, the purpose that he has for you. John 10 says that, that the Lord came that you may have life and life in abundance. But the thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And see, idolatry and covetousness, it doesn't have to be those things that we think about most. Well, it's money, well, it's this. It can be just anything that you, that's challenging your devotion to God. Anything. Sleep, food, the things that we don't necessarily think about. And so I want to encourage you, turn to the Lord today. Because Jesus told the woman at the well, you will thirst again if you drink from the, the well of this life for your satisfaction. You will, like the woman at the well, you will thirst again. But Jesus says, if you drink from the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. Isaiah says it's, it's drinking from the wells of the water of salvation. I love the quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, I found that no experience in this life can satisfy that void that I have. And he says, the only plausible explanation is that I wasn't made for this world. And that's what it is for you and I, is that everybody, people like to say, have a God-shaped vacuum in their heart. And so we're seeking to fill this God-shaped vacuum. The problem is we use the pseudo-saviors of the world to try to fill that void, and it just leaves us empty. And so our hearts are restless until they rest in Christ. Amen? So may we seek the Lord while he may be found. May we lay all our care, anxieties, and burdens at his feet because he cares for us. Do you guys know that? That the Lord cares for you. He came that you may have life and life in abundance. And even those of us who have been born again, we still struggle with worry and anxiety and all those things that everyone else struggles with. But the exhortation for us is to get our eyes off the circumstance and get our eyes back on the Lord. I love Jehoshaphat. I think it's 2 Chronicles 20. And they were going against a lot of the armies, and, and Jehoshaphat immediately prayed to the Lord. And in this prayer, he ended, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. And I pray every day that that would be my prayer. I don't know what to do, Lord. I, I don't know how to live a life that is going to please you perfectly, Lord. But I do know that if I keep my eyes on you, that I'll remain focused. Amen? And so Jesus, again, he came to the temple. It says again in the temple, and this was our Lord's heart. If you guys remember in Luke, probably one of our only uh, accounts of Jesus as a young boy, where'd you find him? In the temple. And his parents came, and why have you done this to us? And Jesus says, I got to be about my Lord's business. Paraphrase. Jesus doesn't speak slang. I got to be about my Lord's business. Right? You know, I'm about my father's business. That's what I'm about as a young boy. So Jesus often resorted to prayer and resorted to teaching people in the temple. In chapter 6, he was again in the synagogue, in the temple, teaching the word. Chapter 5, he was in the temple again. Jesus found the lame man that had been healed in the temple. And when he says, and all people came to him, you got to imagine the Pharisees were the religious leaders of that day. So you got to imagine it's almost like, uh, I would say, this is the local government, right? The local government has a lot of control over everybody. Pray for the government. And Jesus came in and was teaching, and all the people were getting instruction from Jesus and not the government anymore. Government was outraged. And so this is the same thing with the Pharisees. They're upset because everyone's coming to Jesus now. They were before coming to the Pharisees because Pharisees were teaching them. You know, and they didn't have anything other than what the Pharisees were teaching them. So to the people, that, that's what it was. You know, it's almost like you don't know the value of 
a good car until you have a good car. If you have a pencil, a pencil is all you have, and you're good, you're good with that until you see a Mercedes-Benz or until you see an E-Class or until you see F-150. I'm not even a car guy. I'm just putting out stuff that I remember hearing. But until you see all these different things, then you're like, oh, why was I, why was I driving that Pinto? I could have had me an F-150. And so when Jesus would come, all the people came to him because Jesus taught like no other person because he is God. I often resort back to looking at the teachings of Jesus and how wonderful it was to, pop, to hear Jesus speak. You know, you look all throughout the Old Testament, and you see over 4,500 times, I believe, thus saith the Lord. And then the Lord said, thus saith the Lord. And the Lord would speak through the prophets and, and uh, the people that he would call to speak to. But then you get into the Gospels, and you don't see thus saith the Lord. You may see it was written, but when Jesus speaks, he says, verily, verily, I say unto you, because he is the Lord. And so when he speaks, it's directly the word himself speaking. Back in John chapter 7, 26, when they heard Jesus speak, they said, oh, he speaks boldly, and no one says anything to him. Uh, seven, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 46, they didn't take him because no man ever spoke like this before. That means Moses, Abraham, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all the prophets, no one ever spoke like this before. In Luke four twenty two, they, they marveled. They said, is this not the son of Joseph? They all bore witness and wondered the gracious words. And then in Luke 4.32, they were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. See, the, the scribes and the Pharisees didn't have authority behind their message because, see, they knew the word very well, but they didn't know the God of the word. And so it's the same thing for us. You can... I know a lot of people that know the word front and back. They could quote, this happened with Jesus. I know it's that man. I know it's this man. And it has zero bearing on their life because they don't have a personal relationship. And it's not until you know Jesus personally until those words are actually going to transform your life. And so Jesus spoke and they all came to him. Matthew 7, 29. Again, he says, they taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. And so, of course, this indeed would cause more contention with Jesus, way more contention. The same will go with us when you and I stand up for truth, when you and I set boundaries in our households, at work, when we're out in the grocery store and we speak up for the things of God, in love, of course, in grace, people are not going to like it. People in power, people of position, and people of authority are not going to like it, and we need to be ready for that. But that all starts again from what? Seeking him in the morning. Jesus was prepared. Now remember, he was 100% God and 100% man. He came to set an example for us. But imagine if, how prepared are you for your day, for where you go, if you haven't sought the Lord for wisdom in the morning? We're not, we're not very well equipped. I always like to use the analogy of athletics. So I used to play football. When we, when we would have uh, what we call hell week. You know, hell week was to prepare you for the football field for your season. And I remember a lot of guys who were lazy and they did not prepare and they didn't even make it through hell week because they weren't prepared. And then it was time to do our testing when we do, uh, they, they call it the, kind of the combine where you, you, would do, you would lift weights a, a certain, back then for us it was you had to lift 225 a certain amount of times. You had to run the 40 yard dash at a, a certain time, right? To, class, to basically test where you are physically to play football. And I remember a lot of guys didn't prepare. And they came, and they were embarrassed, and they were shamed. Now, by the grace of God, I made sure I was always prepared. And so when I came, and it was time to test, there was, I had great results. Why? Because I was prepared. And so it's encouragement for us is in order for you to prepare for what the Lord has for you today, to be a faithful ambassador to him, may we start our morning with seeking his face. Amen? Transition on to chapter, uh, point number three. Sin brings shame. So Jesus is now at the temple. He's teaching. People are coming to him. The Pharisees are outraged that this is happening. And so now they have to go and figure out, okay, how can we catch Jesus? How can we catch the Lord? We got to figure this out. We got to be smarter than this guy. Look, he, he was born of the, of the carpenter. He's nobody. He, has, he doesn't have any type of accolades. We need to get him out of there. So here's what happens. Verse 3, and point number 3, sin brings shame. Verse 3 says this. It says, then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, teacher, 
well, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. So I'll stop there. Just, just so then it says, so when the Pharisees and when the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And so you have to imagine back then, realistically, I mean, how hard is it to actually catch someone in the act of adultery? It's very difficult because that's something that people try to hide. That's not something that people do openly, in the right mind at least. People don't do that openly. And so in order for you to have to catch someone in the act of adultery, you probably knew they were going to do it. Or you probably set it up. And so adultery was against the law, and it always has been wrong, and it always has been against God's law, no matter what the law of the land says. Whatever God says is a sin is a sin, no matter if the law says it's not a sin. Amen? So adultery was against the law and the Ten Commandments, and it was punishable by stoning. It was one of the Ten Commandments. And so when a husband or wife has sexual relations with anyone other than their spouse, is considered adultery. And so Leviticus 20.10 tells us that if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So it would be both the woman and the man were to be cast out outside the gate, and they basically would sit there and they would stone them. And so imagine that you're caught stealing or you're caught doing something, and you're brought in front of the city and everyone sees it. You're pretty much caught naked. Everyone sees it, and they're getting ready to stone you for that. Very shameful, extremely shameful. And so they were caught. This woman was caught in the act. However, the intention behind it was self-righteousness from the Pharisees. And so they brought the woman caught in adultery, and then they set her in the midst. And so funny that now they call Jesus teacher because they, they're, they're, they're up to something. The previous chapter, he was a deceiver. He was a blasphemer. He was uh, violating the law of God because he was doing good on the Sabbath day. When is a good day to do good? Is there a particular day that we have that we should do good and refrain from doing good on, on another day? You guys thought about that? Well, some days we do good, and there's some days that we just shouldn't do good. And see, this is what self-righteousness does. It, it, it violates all common sense. And so because they were so puffed up, they, they had all these names for Jesus, but now we got to try to trick him. So, hey, he's a teacher now. Let's call him teacher. Let's massage him, right? Let's massage his ego. Let me find, here's what self-righteousness let me find someone worse than me, put them in the forefront, and then exalt myself. The greater the sin of another so I can excuse myself. And that's what self-righteousness does. That's where the Pharisees are right now. And I find oftentimes when we're puffed up, we're blind to our own sin. And to make ourselves feel better, we look for everyone lower than we are, point them out to keep ourselves out of being exposed. And it's a shame, both for the Pharisees and the one who is in the sin. Can you imagine how this woman must have felt? Now, the Bible doesn't say that what happened to the man, but we can, we can, we can assume here, we can infer from the text that uh, they didn't really care about the man. This was, this was a setup. But imagine how she must have felt. Yes, I was committing adultery. That's already shameful enough, okay? I was, now I'm caught in the act. My husband's going to find out. My family's going to be destroyed. I'm going to be kicked out of the temple. My whole life is going to be changed. And then the man that I did it with, he wasn't even brought to justice. And now I'm being brought before him. Imagine how she must have felt at this point. And then she's brought in front of Jesus and probably naked. I don't think they, they didn't care about not exposing her. They didn't care about clothing her either. And so she's brought before uh, the temple where many people are, where she can be seen and where she can be exposed. And indeed, she was ashamed. And so here's what they say. Verse 5. They said, Moses in the law commanded us, like they care about Moses in the law, like they care about obeying, right? Commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something to accuse us. And so what they're doing now is... Um, so adultery would be considered a, a capital, capital punishment, something for capital punishment. And so what they're doing now is they're trying to pin the law of Moses against Jesus. Okay, so it shows you how blind they are. The Bible says Jesus is greater than Moses. Amen? So they're trying to pin the law of Jesus against Moses. And so this is their attempt to try and have him oppose the law of Moses. So guess what? Okay, if Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't stone her, then guess what? We can say he's against Moses. We got him. 
easy work. So they try to say, okay, look, Moses said, you know, this girl needs to be stoned. But if he doesn't stone her, if he does stone her, then they're trying to pin him up against the Roman authorities. Because at that very time, they were under Roman rule to where Roman, Rome was in charge of capital punishment. And so the Jews weren't allowed to do capital punishment. And here's another thing to think about. They had not been doing capital punishment for almost four or 500 years because they were, already, they were under Roman oppression. So now all of a sudden, we're concerned about capital punishment. All of a sudden, we're concerned about stoning people, even though we haven't done it in four or 500 years. But all of a sudden, I think, you know, Jesus, you need to know we need to get back to doing this, and I think you need to be the first one to do it. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. So this is what the Pharisees are doing. This is what they're doing right now. And also, too, this is how Satan works in each and every one of our lives. He is the accuser of the brethren. He seeks ways to make us feel condemned. He tries to kill, steal, and destroy. And he does not want you to live in fellowship with God. He does not want you to have the peace that surpasses all understanding. And he will find any way and anything to condemn you when you are wrong and when you're in sin. He finds it all the time. So he puts thoughts in your head. No one likes you. You're not worthy. You're a worthless sinner. You can't come to God because look how sinful you are. You need to get cleaned up first. And then maybe, just maybe, Jesus might accept you. These are the lies of Satan. You're not good enough. The only hang around you because they pity you. They feel bad for you. You should just end your life. You're worthless. What's your purpose in life? You lost your job. You can't provide for your family. What a lousy husband or wife you are. Your, your, your parents are never satisfied with what you do. This all comes from Satan. This is how he operates. He wants to condemn you. But I want to tell you guys, I want to encourage you this morning through the word of God. The Bible says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And that he shall never leave us nor forsake us. And yes, he does have a problem with sin, but he's also provided a solution for sin. We have a heavenly advocate, 1 John tells us. We have Jesus who pleads our case before the Father every time we fall short of the glory of God. We have the exhortation in Scripture in 1 John uh, 1.9, where he says if we confess our sin, that he is gracious, he's good and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if that's you this morning where the enemy's constantly making you feel condemned, he likes to set traps for us. He knows that we're going to fall short and he wants us to feel condemned because guess what? When you're condemned, you don't, you don't feel like you can help anyone else. When you're condemned, you can't walk in your purpose because you have the heavy sentence of condemnation over your head. When you feel condemned, you can't walk in faith because you're walking in condemnation. And so I want to encourage you as a woman, woman caught in adultery is feeling right now, you don't have to feel that way. Jesus has come to relieve you from that. An outline, whether we're caught in the act or done privately, sin still has heavy consequences. So when they say they want to accuse Jesus, they want to accuse him of something, the actual word means to charge with an accusation. Now think about it. How blind and dumb do you have to be to try to find something wrong with the creator of the universe. Think about that. How far from God do you have to be to try to charge God with wrong? This is the spiritual condition of self-righteousness. This is why Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, his greatest opposition was the religious leaders. It wasn't the prostitutes. It wasn't the drug dealers. It wasn't, it wasn't those, the murderers and the thieves and the adulterers. Those people knew they were wrong. His greatest opposition wasn't with them, although that's wrong too. His greatest opposition were those who thought way more highly of themselves than they should. That's what the greatest, his greatest opposition was. When we try to charge God with evil, we're always wrong. Every time. We're always wrong. We need to check our hearts before him. Every time. We need to confess our sin to the Lord and walk in light. See, yes, without Jesus, we're already condemned, John 3 tells us. It's Jesus that frees us from the condemnation. And so while these Pharisees are trying to condemn this woman, but also 
they're also trying to condemn Jesus. And that's what self-righteousness does. Everybody's wrong and I'm always right. And I've learned that the one thing that the Christian and the legalist, the self-righteous person have in common is your holiness. You're concerned about your holiness and so are they. And so as long as you're focused on your holiness, you and the legalist will get along just fine. But as soon as you care enough to tell them about themselves, that's when you're going to have conflict between you and the self-righteous legalist because that's when they're going to now try to condemn you even more. I have an example of when I first came to the, I mean, I'd been in the faith for a while, but I hadn't taught anything. And I had a brother in Christ who kind of came alongside and was kind of discipling me. And all the people that were kind of in our group, one by one, slowly but slowly, got in conflict with this man. And, and, I, and I didn't see why at first. I, I didn't know why because, honestly, I was so focused on my holiness and trying to be right before the Lord, I didn't, I didn't see a lot of things. I was just too focused on me. And so me and this guy got along well because we were both focused on my righteousness. And so if I did anything wrong, he'd be the first one to tell me, oh, man, you're not loving your wife. Yeah, I, I, this, is, this is what it says. Oh, man, you, you're, you're not parenting your, ki- your kids right. You know, so, okay, all right, okay, well, how can I? Let's go to the Word. Let's see what this says. And so I was, I was super concerned. And then eventually, one day, I was like, man, I'm, I'm starting to feel a little bit condemned here. Something's up. Could it be maybe that you might be wrong? He lost it. Oh, lost it. How could I be wrong? I studied the Bible. I read God's Word. All these things that the self-legalists will do because that's what they justify themselves with. And when I opposed that, next thing you know, I was condemned. I was a false teacher. I was leading people to hell. Everyone I follow was going in the wrong direction, and it just blew up. Because this is what, this is what religion does. It constantly seeks to condemn people and make people labor for their acceptance to God. But I thank God Almighty that the Bible says that before the foundation of the earth that we have been chosen, that we have been accepted, we have been adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And I'm so glad, but we need reminders. We need reminders. So the Pharisees, wow, they just amaze me sometimes. Verse 6. Then, after he asked Jesus, what do you say? They said, testing him that they may find something to accuse him. I think I just read that. Amen. So, uh, but when Jesus, I'm sorry, it's still part of verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. I love this. This is awesome. Good stuff. First of all, I like how Jesus didn't immediately respond. And I think that's an example for, for you and I. Whenever we hear something we don't like or something that may convict us, don't we jump to respond right away? Aren't we quick to try to defend ourselves? We, we constantly think of how we have to jump and defend ourselves. But we don't have to. The Bible says that we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness God desires. And I've learned that the only thing that we should do hastily is go to the Lord in prayer. Amen? That's the only thing that we should do hastily to seek his wisdom. So Jesus doesn't respond right away. He did not immediately respond, but simply pretended that he had not heard them. And then he wrote with his finger on the ground. I love that. So going on to point number four. So we just saw following Jesus comes with the price. May we seek Jesus early in the morning. And of course, sin brings Shame. Imagine how that woman felt. That's what sin does to each and every one of us all the time, whether done in secret or whether done publicly. Point number four. Before helping our brothers and sisters, we truly need to examine our motives. So verse seven. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her first. So Jesus' silence is killing them now. Because they're trying to get, they're trying to accomplish accusing Jesus, finding something wrong with Jesus. And so they're, they're having a hard time, the fact that Jesus, Jesus is not playing into their plan. This is not working. For the religious leader, you know what? When they feel like they lose control with the Pharisee, when they feel like they're no longer in control, it, it blows them away. They can't handle it. And so they start questioning Jesus again, continually asking him, what do you say? You're supposed to be a teacher. You're supposed to be a rabbi. What do you say? As if they actually care. As if they're actually going to obey. This is hypocrisy at its finest. 
They're not going to listen to Jesus. They, they never had before. They didn't even believe in him. And so they say, what do you say? And so Jesus says, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her first. So Jesus agrees with the law of Moses, of course. He is the fulfillment of the law of Moses. Sin has to be punished. A righteous judge cannot allow crime to continue. A righteous judge has to righteously judge sin. He has to or he's no longer a righteous judge. If he accepts a bribe, the Bible says he perverts justice. And so a righteous judge has to point out sin. And this phrase, he who's without sin cast the first stone. You know, people love to use that. We love to use that. Oh, oh you can't cast the first stone without sin. You have no right to judge me because you have sin too, so you can't do it. So I'm good. I'm, I'm clear. And wipe our hands, right? That's not the context. That is definitely not the context. We love to use this phrase to justify our own wrongdoing and prevent others from calling it out. Like I said, it's not the context. So this context, the intention is to those sitting in the judgment seat, to those who are in a position to where they have authority. But also on on the second-hand side, the Bible says that as Christians, we are to judge one another, but not not hypocritically and not to condemnation, right? I think Matthew 7, it talks about judge not lest you be judged. The measure you use to judge will be the same measure that is judged back to you. But those who are walking the spirit, like Galatians 5 says, when you love, uh, 1 Corinthians 13, it says love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. And so in all reality, when we call out maybe a wrongdoing that a brother or sister is doing, we call it out because we love them and then we also want to offer restoration for them as well. Hey, the Lord loves you. I love you. I don't believe what you're doing is pleasing to the Lord, and here's the word to say it. I want to pray for you and offer restoration back to the Lord. That's the right way to do it, but that's not the Pharisee's intention here. And that's how you always know we have to check our motives for why we come alongside and call things out. What's our motive? You see, calling out sin without the intention of loving that person back into restoration is not love at all. It's selfishness. Your intention is not to help this person. Your intention is to destroy this person and in doing so, making yourself look better. That ought not be the Christian. How about us? Are we quick to judge someone else for their faults? Do we consider that we too fall and we also need God's forgiveness? We all need God's forgiveness. Micah 6, 8. It says, what has God told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We should seek to restore people, not condemn them. James 2.13 says that mercy triumphs over judgment. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, every single one of us. But we have to remember that when we look upon others, God desires mercy. We should have mercy on one another, not like the Pharisees. And so I love how Jesus says, hey, you know what? I agree with the law of Moses. And you know what? If any of you here doesn't have sin, here's the rock. You know why? Because he knew the intentions of their heart. He knew they didn't bring that woman there because they cared about righteousness. They, didn't, they definitely didn't bring the woman there because they actually cared about her, but they brought the woman there to carry out their own scheme, to continue in their hypocrisy, and to enjoy the praise of man rather than the praise that comes from God. May that never be us. Point number five. Jesus came to save, not destroy. Verse number eight. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, this, I love this. Then, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Stooped down, and they were convicted by their conscience. So many people assume they may know what he wrote. You know, many people uh, can guess, oh, I kind of fear what he wrote. The, the reality is we, we don't really know what he wrote. It just, it just said, I would love to have that 
sand that he wrote in in stone. I would love to know what he wrote, but we don't know what he, exactly what Jesus wrote. But we do know how they responded to what he wrote. Now imagine, these are the self-righteous Pharisees. They have, all throughout the Gospels, they never admit doing anything wrong. They always get mad at Jesus for doing everything right. And so do you think that the religious Pharisees, if they knew Jesus couldn't prove anything against them, they would not have walked away. Convicted or not convicted. They would not have walked away. And so I want to infer, I believe, that Jesus was writing each of their sin either in the same area or other areas that would prevent them from claiming they were sinless. Because you've got to remember, the self-righteous person has made a savior out of their morality. They have a pseudo-savior in their self-righteousness. Because I do, I tithe, mint, leave, and coming, right? I'm perfect before God. Because I pray long prayers so, so everyone can see me and hear me, I'm right before God. When we come into the love feast, I want the best seat. That was the Pharisees. They love the praise of man rather than the praise that comes from God. They're not going to admit in any way, shape, or form that they have any wrong. They're not going to do that unless it's put right in front of their face and no one can, and everyone knows it and they can't deny it. So no one actually catches these in the act. But since the Bible says God is all-knowing, Jesus is all-knowing, he knows our thoughts as well. He's able to reveal those as well. So I believe when, he's, when they saw their sin in the sand, they started to leave one by one, starting with the oldest, because the older they are, the more sin you have. And so you can only imagine that older Pharisee who was probably puffed up and self-righteous to the sky, when he saw his sin in the sand, it's almost like Jesus was in his heart, sorting out all the evil stuff, setting it apart and made it naked and exposed before everybody else. And this is exactly what it should do, is that they were convicted to the heart, to the core. They were convicted, so convicted that for the first time we see in the Gospels, they actually, well, they've walked away before, but they walk away and the Bible says they were convicted for the first time. And so our conscience, aren't you glad that even, even if you're not born again, your conscience, which means with knowledge, God has given everyone a conscience. And so whether you know God or you don't know God, the Holy Spirit is either with you, inside of you, or upon you if you're born again. But if you're not born again, we believe that that's the Holy Spirit, your conscience. That's why Romans 1 says that you're not going to have an excuse when you stand before God. Because your conscience bears witness to who God is. And I thank God for that. If that's you today, that you've been living a life apart from God. And you've made a savior out of your morality. You see, what morality would do, it may keep you out of jail, but it won't keep you out of hell. Amen? You need the Savior to save you from that. And so morality won't save you. Doing good works can't save you. Trying to keep up with the Joneses can't save you. There's nothing you and I can do to save ourselves. And this is why we need a Savior. And this is why Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. I pray and encourage you to place your trust in Christ today. Tomorrow is not promised. The Bible says it's appointed for a man to die once and afterwards is the judgment. You and I are going to stand before God one day and you're either going to be clothed in Christ's righteousness or you're going to be judged for your sin. And I encourage you, don't let it be being judged for your sin when you don't have to be. Amen? Our conscience convicted them and they started walking away one by one starting with the oldest down to the youngest. Verse 9. Then those who heard it, well, I think I said that. Give the oldest, oh, sorry, second part of verse 9. And Jesus was left alone with the, left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And going back to when he stooped on the ground and wrote against them, that word against, that word, stooped on the ground and wrote, that word literally means writing something against. And that's why I believe that he was writing their sin in the sand. And so now Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the mist. And this is a perfect picture of you and I on Judgment Day. It's going to be you and the Lord alone. Your mother and father aren't going to be able to stand for you or with you. 
the good works that you've done are not going to be able to stand for you or with you. Your cousin, your best friend, even your pastor, your youth leader, they're not going to be able to stand for you or with you. It's going to be you and the Lord Jesus alone. And you will bow and you will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so right now it's just the woman and Jesus When it comes to righteousness, Jesus stands alone. This is why he was the only one still there. He is the only one who can save. He is the only one who can measure up to the perfect standard of the Lord. He is the only one in whom which the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. No one else gets to standard. There is only one judge, and his name is Jesus. Now imagine now you're caught in the act talked about the shame. We talked about what it must have felt like. You were being mocked, I'm sure. Everyone looking down on you, knowing that the man that did it with you or whoever did it with you, they got let off. They're not here. It's unjust in a sense. Many were seeking to embarrass you, and now you look up and they're all gone. Imagine the burden that's been lifted. Imagine the pressure that's been taken off. Imagine the shame that has now been covered. Imagine that, the relief. See, Psalm 130 says, and I love this verse. It says that, Lord, if you did and if you would keep track of sins or iniquities, who would stand? But he said, there's forgiveness with you, O Lord, that you may be feared. The Lord wants to forgive us. He's not sitting on the throne waiting and contemplating judgment. The Bible says that he wills that none shall perish No, not one, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth and repent. And so Jesus wants to forgive us. Another one in Psalm 103, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the heart of the Lord. He does not want us to live in condemnation any longer. Jesus now makes it clear that he did not come to condemn because guess what? Could he have condemned that woman? He most certainly could have. Could he condemn you and I? He most certainly can. And if you don't trust in him, he eventually he will. But that's not the purpose on why he came. Jesus made it very clear, I did not come to condemn. And ultimately, as I said earlier, without Jesus, you and I are already condemned by our sin. Because the wages of sin is death. We work it. It's what we get paid for our wicked acts. But the gift of God is eternal life. Christ Jesus, our Lord. So he says to her, second part of verse 9, I believe. No, 10, I'm sorry. When Jesus had raised himself, verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Now, condemnation simply means a sentence. You've been given a sentence, a prison sentence kind of. In this case, it would have been death by stoning and eternal damnation. For us, it's eternal separation from God when we're condemned for our sin. That's what it means. Jesus is pointing at her that your accusers are gone, and I'm the only one left that actually can accuse you, but I'm not. See, our conscience tells us right from wrong, and in the end, it will just be us and Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus tells her, I'm sorry, she says to Jesus in answering his question. She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so here's here's how it goes. Grace is a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous thing. Grace is powerful enough to free us from the bondage of sin. But it also carries the notion of freeing us to obey God. And so it's freedom from sin, but not freedom to continue in sin. And so, yes, although he vindicates her, although he lifts and covers her sin and takes it away as far as the east is from the west, he still gives an exhortation, go and sin no more. Do not continue in your life of sin. 
as you guys heard it been said, that faith alone saves, but a faith that saves is never alone. There will be transformation. There will be anguish over sin, and we should be convicted when we sin. That is one of the main differences between a born-again believer and someone who is not born again. They both sin. Okay, we still, unfortunately, we still struggle with sin all the way into the day that we're glorified. And the non-believer can say, well, why should I be saved? You sin too, sin just like me. What's the point, right? Which is folly, okay? The difference is what's on the inside. When the non-believer sins, the Bible says they're practicing it, they're enjoying it. All men seek their own, not the things of Christ. All have gone astray like sheep and go their own way. That's the non-believer. They're not in anguish over their sin. Thing was Psalm 38 which is a perfect picture of how the believer should feel when they're in sin. It says, I will be in anguish over my sin. I will confess my iniquity. Like David in Psalm 51, he says, against you and only you, O Lord, have I sinned and done this wickedness in your sight. And Joseph, in front of Potiphar's wife, would then say, how can I do this evil and wickedness before my God? That is the heart of a born-again believer. And so, yes, we've been freed from sin, and we still fall to sin, but may we constantly look to the Lord Jesus in our time of temptation. Last, last section on your outline. When we are tempted to sin, we need to focus on the Savior, not the temptation. That's why he says, sin no more, set your affections on heaven. Amen? And so, in conclusion, neither do I condemn you. Jesus did not come to destroy our lives. Jesus did not come to condemn, because we're condemned already because of our sin, but he's come to save. Following Jesus comes with a price, okay? I love what King David said. He said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. It's going to cost to follow the Lord. And Romans 12, 1 tells us that we should offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is our reasonable service. In the morning, make it a habit, make it a practice, make it your passion, Seek the Lord early while he may be found. And three, point three, remember, sin brings shame. It breaks fellowship. It, it, it runs rampant in our lives, but it can be dealt with by constantly focusing on the Lord and seeking his face and pursuing righteousness and holiness above all things. When we call and help people, point four, when we want to minister and help people, examine our motives. My motive is always to love you enough to point out when you're not living your life a purpose for God and offer restoration to God. It's been said, one beggar leading another beggar to the bread, right? We're all in the even playing field. When we bow, the cross is at it. When we're bowing, the ground is at an even playing field at the cross, amen? And then lastly, Jesus came to save, not destroy. And may we always remember that. And I want to leave you guys with this. If there's any of you in here right now, before the worship team comes up, if there's any guys in you watching, um, any of you guys that will watch this later, um, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And if you're in your sin, Jesus says, if you don't believe on me, you will die in your sin. And that's not the heart of God. And I want to offer to you guys today the gospel. And this is what the gospel says. The gospel says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that without Jesus, no man can be saved. But he also says in John 5, 24, that verily, verily, I say unto you, that he who hears my words and believes on he who sent me has everlasting life and will not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Therefore, if you confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father. So I just want to pray for you. I don't know where you are. I don't know when or where you will hear this, but I want to pray for you that you will call upon the name of the Lord this morning, right now, and be saved. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we graciously thank you for your abundant grace and your abundant mercy. Lord, that while we were sinners, you demonstrated your love towards us. That while we were sinners, you died for us. Verily, for a righteous man would one die. For a good man would one even dare to die. But you had demonstrated your love towards us and that while we were sinners, you died for us. And we went from being dead to being alive. We went from being blind to now seeing. And I pray that for all those right now, Lord, that they would realize that they're a sinner that they would know that there's no way out except by faith in your son, Jesus, that they would turn from sin and turn to put their faith and trust in Christ for everlasting life. 
The Bible says if you truly believe that, that you've, you've been born again, you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and I pray that you continue walking in grace and knowledge. And Lord, as we go into worshiping you, I pray, Lord, that we would lift up songs of praise and adoration to you, our God. And Father, we pray that we would always become less and you would become more. We want to become more like you, Lord Jesus. We pray for all those that are affected by COVID-19, Lord. We pray, Father, that they would come to know you. Those who are discouraged, that they would come to be encouraged by your word because the Bible says that the scriptures are breathed out by you, Lord, and that they're profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instructions in righteousness. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand up and worship.